As we open God's Word together this morning, let me begin by praying. I would love to be there with you all this morning, but uh, circumstances have precluded me. But I want to open God's Word with you, and so that's what we're going to seek to do through the means of technology. So would you pray where you are with me now? Father, thank you for the privilege of opening your word with these people. Thank you for the opportunity to continue to be Alfred Almond Bible Church together, even though uh, we might, many of us, have to be at home right now. We pray for those who are ill. We pray that you would bring healing. We pray that this would be a time of growth uh, for all of us as we uh, go through this season together. Help us to shoulder each other's burdens. Help us to weep with those who weep in the midst of this time. We seek to hear from you this morning, whether we're sitting together in the auditorium of Alfred Holman Bible Church or whether we're sitting at home uh, listening through a computer screen or a telephone. We pray that you would speak through your word powerfully, whatever that needs to look like. So thank you that you can do that, no matter the hindrances, no matter the obstacles that we face. So we pray that you would bless the time that we have this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Whenever I step behind a pulpit, whether it be there in the building or here in my uh, workout room, as it were, uh, I am seeking to obey the Great Commission. My aim this morning, as in all Sunday mornings, is to be obedient to at least one aspect of the Great Commission. Jesus commanded his disciples in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. I am hoping to teach you to observe something that Jesus has commanded you. The Great Commission is not simply limited to getting conversions. Once people become disciples, by being converted, by being born again, by being given new life by the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel, then we are to teach those disciples to obey what Jesus has commanded. This is what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount, the kingdom life discourse, as I have called it. Jesus himself is making disciples, and he is teaching his disciples what it means to obey. But Jesus' starting point is not simply what he himself says. Rather, he goes back to the Old Testament law and teaches his disciples how to obey that properly. For followers of Jesus, the Old Testament law is not invalid or irrelevant. Instead, we have to learn to filter everything in the Old Testament law through Jesus' life and teachings. As one anonymous Christian teacher from the early church has said, Christ's commandment contains the law, but the law does not contain Christ's commandment. Therefore, whoever fulfills the commandments of Christ implicitly fulfills the commandments of the law. In Matthew 5.21, we enter into a series of six statements that begin with a reference to Old Testament law. These statements have often been referred to as antitheses, since they all read something like this. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. When we read these statements as antitheses, however, we think Jesus is saying, the Old Testament said this, but I am going to correct it by saying this to you now, as though Jesus' teaching contradicted the Old Testament. Or many people try to say that Jesus is pointing to the way that the scribes and Pharisees interpreted certain Old Testament commands. And I do think Jesus is correcting the scribes and Pharisees in these statements. After all, he had just said in verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what Jesus teaches here is going to illustrate what true righteousness, righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, righteousness that is necessary for one to enter the kingdom of heaven, looks like on the ground. Now, as we understand from the New Testament more broadly, the righteousness we need to enter the kingdom of heaven is actually Christ's righteousness, imputed to us, 
counted to us as God justifies us by faith alone. Paul emphasizes this truth in many places. We must have God pronounce the verdict of righteous over, our, over us, and he does that only as we trust in Jesus. As Jesus had our guilty verdict pronounced over him on the cross, so we, by trusting in him, can have his righteous verdict pronounced over us. But in this sermon, the king, in this kingdom life discourse, Jesus is talking more about what we might call practical righteousness. Our practical righteousness must exceed the practical righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, or we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Both the verdict of righteousness and practical righteousness are necessary for us to enter the kingdom of heaven. But notice the order. We receive the verdict of righteous first, and then we grow in practical righteousness. Thinking of a normal courtroom, we might think the order should be reversed. We should be obedient, practically righteous, and then we'll enter the courtroom and the judge will pronounce the verdict of righteous over our lives. But that's not how God has chosen to do it. Instead, he must pronounce us righteous by our faith in Jesus before we even can do any kind of practical righteousness. God promised to enable believers to obey as part of the new covenant. So we could rightly say that the imputed righteousness of Christ is manifested in a practical righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. In the following verses, Jesus' starting point is not with the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees, but instead is with the Old Testament law itself. You see, I think Jesus is actually suggesting that the scribes and Pharisees have misunderstood the Old Testament law at a fundamental level. So Jesus is going to show what the Old Testament law meant all along. Jesus is not adding something new to the Old Testament law that wasn't there before. Though Jewish rabbis would often seek to explain Old Testament laws and show how they apply to their hearers, and they would even seek to correct other rabbis' explanations. They would not do it quite like Jesus has done it. At the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, we learn the crowd's impression of Jesus' teaching in Matthew 7, 28 and 29. The crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. The scribes would appeal to other rabbis and other authorities to support their teaching. Jesus simply says, and I say to you, so that he highlights his personal authority as equal to that of God and the one who gave the law in the first place. A modern Jewish rabbi, Jacob Neusner, discussing this section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, describes his own astonishment, saying, here is a Torah teacher who says in his own name, what the Torah says in God's name. He goes on to mention how even Moses and the Old Testament prophets didn't say, I say to you, but rather, thus says the Lord. Before we dive into our passage this morning, allow me to share a word about my personal engagement with this passage. This morning, we're looking at Matthew 5, 21 to 30, where Jesus teaches us how to obey two famous commandments from the Ten Commandments, the commandments prohibiting murder and adultery. If you're at all familiar with this passage, you know that Jesus focuses on anger and lust. Looking back on my life, I would say that anger and lust were the besetting sins of my youth. I could go further and say that anger and lust dominated my childhood and my adolescence, both before I was a follower of Jesus and after I started following Jesus. So, on the one hand, I have personal experience, extensive personal experience, in breaking these two commands and the way Jesus explains. But on the other hand, I have, all, I have found great personal help from Jesus' teaching here on what repentance from these sins actually looks like. Now, without further ado, let's get into Jesus' words here. 
Jesus is teaching us how to obey the prohibition against murder. And there are two parts to this. We'll begin by looking at verses 21 and 22. Follow along. You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus begins by saying, You have heard that it was said to those of old, to those of old. Now, if you're reading the King James Version, you see, Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time. The translators seem to have interpreted this as a reference specifically to the traditional teachings of the Jewish leaders, the scribes and Pharisees. But as all other English translations recognize, this is actually a phrase that refers to God speaking. You have heard that it was said by God to those of old. Jesus is referring to God speaking his law to the Israelites in the wilderness. Then Jesus quotes the prohibition against murder, you shall not murder, which we would find in our Bibles in both Exodus 20, 13 and Deuteronomy 5, 17. The next phrase is not a precise quotation from an Old Testament verse, but it definitely summarizes the Old Testament penalty for murder. The judgment being referred to is the judgment of capital punishment the death penalty. Jesus probably has in mind a text like Numbers 35.30, which says, If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. Jesus uses the term judgment to imply the judicial process, including the use of witnesses to establish the charges, as Numbers 35.30 illustrates. We are probably correct to imagine that the scribes and Pharisees would have simply said that obeying this commandment means you simply avoid taking anyone's life. As long as I haven't personally caused someone to die on purpose, then I have obeyed this commandment. Jesus, however, shows us the truth. Anger in the heart and insults from the mouth break this commandment. John Stott says, Anger and insult are ugly symptoms of a desire to get rid of somebody who stands in our way. Our thoughts, looks, and words all indicate that as we sometimes dare to say, we wish he were dead. Such an evil wish is a breach of the commandment. Whereas we tend to think of murder as solely in terms of an action, Jesus shows us that our emotions and our words can break this commandment. Now, it is true that anger in the heart and insults from the mouth often precede the action of murder. But Jesus is saying more. Jesus is saying not only that anger leads to murder, but that anger is a species of murder. Jesus is saying not only that verbal insults may lead to murder, but that verbal insults are a species of murder. Think about this for a moment. What happens in your mind when you are angry with a person? How do you tend to think about them? I tend to think pretty poorly of them. I tend to belittle them in my mind. I'm In my mind, even if I never actually think I wish he were dead, I tend to demean their person. I might even want them to hurt. And if I open my mouth with these angry feelings simmering in my heart, insults flow pretty freely. Instead of direct insults, I might employ a sarcastic tone. Or I might not even speak to the person directly. Instead, I might vent my angry words to some other listening ear. What am I really doing to the person there? I'm murdering their reputation. And with insults to their face, I'm actually killing their character. Names were incredibly important in the ancient world. So when you insult someone by calling them a fool or a numbskull, you're actually killing who they are and replacing their identity with a shameful one. Sinclair Ferguson writes, We treat the damage we do with our lips very lightly 
because we do not see the corpses we leave behind. Notice the way Jesus connects anger and insults with murder. He had pointed to Numbers 35.30 to indicate that someone found guilty of murder in the Old Testament law was to face judgment, and that judgment was the death penalty. He uses the same phrase, liable to judgment, with regard to anger. As Jesus progresses from anger, which makes you liable to judgment, to insults, which make you liable to the council, like having to go before the grand jury, to calling someone a fool, which makes you liable to hell. I think he is simply piling on the images of judgment to show that all of these actions, murder, anger, and insults of various kinds, make you liable, finally, to hell. Jesus suggests that people found guilty of murder in all of its forms, including anger in the heart and insults from the mouth, should be punished in hell. After all, what human court could actually convict someone of anger in the heart? You might be feeling a little uncomfortable right now. Isn't anger sometimes justified, sometimes okay? In fact, the King James Version and the New King James Version have the phrase, without a cause. But let's not soften what Jesus actually said by adding words he didn't say. There may be exceptions. In fact, there must be, because we know that Jesus himself was angry at times. In fact, even though Jesus says, whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire, Jesus himself calls people fools at times, using this exact word, Matthew 23, 17, if you want to look it up. But folks, be honest. Look back on your own anger. Look back on times that you've insulted someone, a fellow follower of Jesus, a spouse, your children. Can you really say those were justified? Oh, I know that when you're feeling angry, you always feel justified. You always feel in the heat of it that you're right. But Jesus is pushing us to be wary of our anger. If there's even a chance that it's not truly justified, not truly acceptable anger, then you are in danger of facing judgment in hell. We'll talk more about hell in just a few minutes. So far, Jesus has told us of some surprising ways that we can break the prohibition against murder. Now, in verses 23 to 26, he tells us positively how we to keep the commandment. Let's look at what he says. So, if you are offering your gift, your, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. He gives two illustrations. One, focusing on our relationship with other believers, and the other, focusing on our relationship with non-believers. The simple point of both stories is that pursuing reconciliation is the way to obey this commandment. Though these commandments are phrased as thou shalt nots, we cannot and should not be known simply by what we avoid. And indeed, these negative commands always have a positive corollary. Simply put, you shall not murder implies you shall recognize, value, and preserve human life. In the first illustration, we learn that reconciliation takes precedence over formal worship. Jesus paints a picture of two Jews. So put yourself in the sandals of one of those Jewish people. You have traveled some 80 miles from Galilee to Jerusalem to bring an animal to sacrifice at the temple. As you stand in line to hand off the animal to the priest at the altar and confess your sin, you remember that your Jewish friend back home in Galilee 
is angry with you. Did he did you really do something to hurt your friend? Or is he angry with you without a cause? It doesn't matter. Jesus says that you must leave your animal there at the temple and tell the priest to hold on to it for you until you return. Then Jesus says that you must return to Galilee and seek reconciliation with your friend. Only after successfully reconciling with your friend should you go back to Jerusalem to complete the sacrifice you had intended to offer. Now think about this scenario for just a moment before we seek to apply it to our situation as modern-day followers of Jesus. It would take you several days to return home to reconcile with your friend. All the while, your animal is just hanging out at the temple in Jerusalem. We are probably meant to see some of Jesus' famous hyperbole or exaggeration to make his point here. What's the point, then? Reconciliation among citizens of the kingdom of heaven, among God's people, among followers of Jesus, takes precedence over formal acts of worship. And pursuing reconciliation among us is how we keep this commandment. Notice that he has shifted to the reality that someone else is angry. The phrase, he has something against you, could just as well be translated, he is holding something against you. So here's how to think about applying this to your own life. Do you think someone, a fellow follower of Jesus, is angry with you because of something you said or something you did or something you forgot to do? If so, it's your responsibility to seek reconciliation. It's your responsibility to go to that person and help them deal with their anger. It doesn't matter if their anger is legitimate or not. Jesus will say more about this in Matthew 18. Now, for us, does that mean that if in the middle of our time together this morning, you remember that your neighbor who attends Almond Community Church is angry with you because you accidentally ran into his mailbox last week with your car. You should get up, go to the store, and buy him a new mailbox. Walk into Almond Community Church in the middle of their service, find your neighbor, tap him on the shoulder, pull him out to the parking lot, and have a conversation with him to reconcile by giving him a new mailbox and apologizing profusely. If you want to take Jesus' words literally, then that's exactly what you should do. However, if Jesus is speaking hyperbolically, then he's simply pressing home the urgency we should feel and the priority we should place of pursuing reconciliation whenever anger is present between followers of Jesus. Don't let anger simmer. Paul will build on this and press the urgency even further, perhaps, in Ephesians 4.26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. This implies that it would be sinful for you to let your anger carry over into tomorrow. Deal with it today. And Jesus would say, if you know that someone is angry with you, deal with it today. When we combine this with James's command to be slow to anger, we can say that Christian anger should be slow to awaken and quick to abate. I read an illustration from James Montgomery Boyce that I just have to share with you. This is an encounter he had with his very young daughter. He writes, One Sunday evening after the 7.30 service in my church, I was talking with my daughter Elizabeth and learned that she was greatly offended because someone had mistreated her as she thought. He had held her upside down, and she did not like that and was angry about it. She said to me, I don't like that man. I'm never going to forgive him. I'll forgive Cece and Vicky and Pamela, her friends, but not him. I said, oh, you don't want to say that. Jesus tells us that we are supposed to forgive one another. He forgives us, doesn't he? 
She said, Yes, I know. They teach me that in Sunday school and at school, but I don't understand it. What I'd really like to do is kick him. I said, Yes, that's the way we are, but God wants us to be different. Then he draws the lesson home to us. If you look into your heart honestly, when you are offended, you will find that to kick the person is what you would, would most like to do. It is often what I would most like to do. And yet, we must not do it. In fact, we must even come to the point at which we ask God to change our hearts and minds so that we will not even want to do it. Jesus adds a second illustration to elaborate this sense of urgency in order to press home the fact that putting off reconciliation can have drastic consequences. And notice that he doesn't limit this to a situation between two followers of Jesus. He describes two people engaged in a lawsuit. So again, put yourself in the sandals of the one Jesus addresses directly. In this case, you really have done something wrong, something that the legal system exacts a financial penalty for. The person you've wronged is suing you. Jesus says that you must not wait until the court date to seek reconciliation. That will be too late. Why would you wait? I imagine you might be thinking, well, I'm guilty, so I might as well see what the fine is that the judge will impose and then pay it as soon as I can. Jesus says instead, pursue reconciliation personally with the person you've wronged. Don't wait to let a judge get involved. It's your responsibility. And it is an urgent and serious responsibility. Don't think lightly of it. Waiting could have drastic consequences. Once you get a judge involved, the judge could decide to call for the maximum penalty. If you had only sought personal reconciliation with the person before ever entering the courtroom, you wouldn't have had to endure the cost of a trial. And you could have maintained your relationship. After someone sues you and a judge finds you guilty, I imagine it would be very difficult to continue carrying on a healthy relationship with that person. Anger results in the deterioration of relationships. Growing up, I allowed anger to simmer in my heart. I didn't know how to address it in a healthy way. If you were to go to the house where I grew up, you can still to this day see some of the monuments to my anger. My old bedroom door and closet door may contain the imprints of my fists in a couple of places. Who was I angry with? Well, often I was just angry about my circumstances, not with anybody in particular. I was angry because I didn't understand why I grew up in my grandparents' home. I was angry because I didn't know who my father was. I was angry because I had all these scars from surgery when I was born. I was angry because kids at school made fun of me. Often my fists would connect with faces instead of doors. More than angry, I was filled with hatred as a boy. I began following Jesus when I was 13, but my anger didn't suddenly vanish. Immediately just go away. What was new and relatively sudden was a desire to treat people better. I did realize that my temper flared up too quickly, but I didn't know what to do about it. I convinced myself that the problem was not my anger in and of itself, but how I expressed my anger. But Jesus wouldn't allow me to stay with that mindset. This passage makes it clear that the problem was in my heart, and I was harboring it. Since my teenage years, I have seen God work to enable me to care more about the people around me and to recognize that my words and even my feelings toward people can damage relationships, and it's my responsibility to repent when anger flares up. It's my responsibility to pursue reconciliation, to admit when I've hurt someone with my words, and to try to alleviate any damage that I've done. That is what Jesus is pressing home in this passage. Jesus moves on in verses 27 to 30 to teach us how to obey the prohibition against adultery. Let's take in what he says, starting with verses 27 to 28. 
You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Whereas in the previous section, Jesus taught us that our emotions and our words can break the commandment, here Jesus teaches us that our desires can break the commandment. Now at this point, let me seek to be clear to clear up what I think is a misunderstanding of what Jesus is saying in this passage. Jesus is not saying that lust is as bad as adultery. Famously, a few years ago, Jerry Falwell Jr., the then president of Liberty University, said this exact thing in an interview on CNN attempting to defend the behavior of then-President of the United States, Donald Trump. Jesus is not saying that anger is as bad as murder. And Jesus is not suggesting that all sins are equal. No one should ever say that. If you think about it for just a moment, you'd realize that this does not make sense. If you talk with someone who has experienced the horror of adultery, they can tell you of the variety of destructive effects it has had on their lives. Obviously, different sins wreak different measures of havoc in people's lives. But it's not even appropriate to say something like, all sins are equal in God's eyes. This is not what Jesus is communicating. Instead, Jesus is challenging the tendency to think of sin in terms of only external actions so that a person could be viewed as godly or righteous as long as they are seen doing the right things. I'm sure that Jesus could have shown how there are internal dimensions to each one of the commandments that seems to imply, simply, seems to simply prohibit certain actions. On the surface, the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, prohibits a person from giving his or her body to someone other than his or her own spouse. This is very much a physical act. Jesus would certainly affirm that this physical act is unacceptable. But he goes further to say that you may break this commandment by looking at a person who is not your spouse with lustful intent. Lust breaks the commandment. The scribes and the Pharisees would have said that if you don't do the physical act, then you're obeying the commandment. For many Jews, this created all kinds of scenarios that allowed them to sneak around and do all kinds of things with people who weren't their spouses without getting into trouble. Because people today do the same things with Jesus' words here, I feel the need to go into greater detail in defining, defining the phrase with lustful intent. Now, Jesus focuses his attention on men, but I'm certain that his words apply to both men and women, married or single. Jesus is saying that what goes on in our imagination can break this commandment. Looking to desire. Looking to desire is a literal way of putting what Jesus says here. Whether the person is on a screen, in a photo or a painting, standing on a beach, drawn up in your mind from the pages of a book, clothed or unclothed, if that person is not your spouse, to look with desire for that person breaks the commandment. If you're married, this means that every other person on the face of the planet and also every person you conjure up in your imagination is off-limits as an object of desire. If you're single, this means that every person on the face of the planet, and also every person you might conjure up in your imagination, is off-limits as an object of desire. But we probably need to ask a further clarifying question. Desire for what purpose? One way we could put it is desire for private, personal pleasure. The kind of pleasure God designed spouses to supply to each other. God created our eyes in part to recognize beauty. 
seeing and recognizing beauty is in a person is not sinful. But when the seeing moves into a desire to use that person for one's own personal, private pleasure, we have broken the commandment. Instead of using our eyes for the purposes God gave them to us, we have turned them into tools that we use to fuel our desires, to inflame our lusts, to please ourselves. God intends for spouses, in the context of marriage, to properly provide this kind of pleasure. We must not look at or imagine anything else or anyone else to provide this kind of pleasure. We train our eyes by what we look at regularly, away from appreciating beauty properly. Instead, our eyes are hunting for things to satisfy our sinful desires. I probably don't need to comment on the rampant problem of lust that plagues society today, but don't think this is merely a modern problem, nor is it merely a problem for boys and men. We've merely developed more creative and elaborate methods for fueling our lust and satisfying our sinful desires. Scribes and Pharisees would say that we obey this commandment as long as we don't give our bodies to someone other than our spouses. Today, we run the risk of doing the same thing to Jesus' words. We might say that we're being obedient as long as we don't lust, look at a person to desire to use them for our own private personal enjoyment. But Jesus goes further. He shows us with vivid warfare imagery what is required to obey this commandment. Look at verses 29 and 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is also what is required for us to repent of our lust, which breaks the commandment. It is the eye, whether the physical eye or the mind's eye, the eye of the imagination, that starts the process of lust. It starts with the look. So Jesus says that we must address the culprit directly and aggressively. If the eye is the problem, you must rip it out. If the hand is the problem, you must cut it off. The sin is serious. The disease is deadly. Only amputation can save the life. Anger in the heart, insults from the mouth. Now lust in the imagination. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Anger, insults, and lust all deserve eternal punishment. Hell. If we are found guilty of these sins in God's courtroom, we will be sentenced to hell on the last day. I want to clear up another misconception here, and this one's a biggie. I've said something about this, I think, in previous messages. I really want us to get this, though. Hell is the place people will go after the final judgment. Hell is the place people will go after the resurrection of the wicked. Look again at the way Jesus characterizes it in verses 29 and 30. In both verses, he speaks of your whole body being thrown into hell. As we think about evangelism, we really need to dispense with asking people, if you died tonight, do you think you'd go to heaven or hell? I understand how that gets them thinking about spiritual things, but we're not speaking truthfully here. According to Scripture, no one goes to hell when they die. Hell is the final destination for sinners, but it will not be populated until the great white throne judgment which follows the resurrection of the wicked. When a person who doesn't know Jesus dies, their soul goes to a place the Bible calls Hades. It's not a happy place, and it is a place of punishment, 
but it is not a physical place. It's a spiritual place where souls continue to exist disconnected from God and others, experiencing a measure of spiritual suffering, sadness, loneliness, and darkness. Hell is far worse, adding an element of physical torment as the full measure of God's wrath will be poured out for all eternity. Jesus warns us about this ultimate reality, this final destination, because he wants us to see the seriousness of sin today. Breaking both of these commandments in the Old Testament, period, would mean that guilty Jews would face the death penalty, executed out of a human court. But Jesus says that God's court must be... God's court must be faced as well. How can we ever escape when God judges our hearts? Jesus says, make friends with people and make war on your sin. He emphasized the need for reconciliation in the previous section. Here, he points to anything in you that causes you to sin. He points to your right eye or your right hand. But he knows that the physical eye and the physical hand are not really what cause any of us to lust or commit adultery. If he were trying to teach ultimate theological truth, he could have commanded us to rip out our hearts, since that is really the source of all of our sin. Instead, he uses this vivid figure of speech, a powerful exaggeration that is remarkably understandable. But notice he doesn't say attack the devil if he causes you to sin. He doesn't say assault the pretty woman if she's clothed inappropriately and causes you to sin. He points particularly to what is in you. That's where the war must be waged. You are responsible for your sin. No one else is. But practically, what does this look like? When Jesus speaks of the eye that trips us up, causes us to stumble, he probably means to highlight the things we look at. Now this means we have to apply this verse very personally. You might be able to look at certain things without sinning that I can't. Jesus is asking each one of us, are you willing to sacrifice anything that will trip you up into sin? And he's also saying, if you are not willing to make war on your sin, This way, you are in danger of being sentenced to hell on Judgment Day. Friends, the movies you watch, the TV shows you watch, the images you look at on the internet, the novels you read, is the fun that you get from these things worth putting yourself in danger of hell? Don't be afraid of what other people might think about you. And when Jesus speaks of the hand that trips us up, causes us to stumble, he probably means to highlight the things that we do. If you're doing something that makes you vulnerable to sin, stop doing it. If you're reading a novel that describes illicit relationships and and it stirs your imagination to dream up some fantasy, stop reading those novels. I had to face this question seriously several years ago. As I mentioned earlier, lust dominated my younger years, from the age of seven all the way into graduate school, especially during my undergraduate years, in my early 20s, almost every day of the week, for weeks at a time, my eyes caused me to sin. I would feel terrible shame and guilt and would try to keep it a secret from everyone around me, And my feelings of guilt and shame overpowered my lust, temporarily. I was breaking this commandment repeatedly and intentionally. Over the course of three years, with the intervention of my wife and a few close friends, I began taking this issue more seriously. But finally, a warning from God's Word penetrated my heart to the degree that I wept over my sin. I remember the day vividly. I was driving to pick up Tamara from work after I'd gotten out of class at Wheaton College. And parts of Hebrews 12, 15 to 17 flashed in my mind. 
See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. I don't even think I understood this passage rightly at the time, but God used these words to stir a fear in me that I might cross a line where I would not be able to repent even if I wanted to. I wept all the way to Tamara's office, and I was still weeping when she got in the car. We had a healthy conversation after that, and that was a huge turning point in my own struggle with lust. That was really just the beginning of the battle. But from that point, I made a commitment, sort of like Job, a covenant with my eyes not to look at a woman with lustful intent. But that wasn't enough. Tamara and I eliminated certain TV shows and movies from our home, and I eliminated Facebook and Instagram from my life. Images on Facebook and Instagram were gateways for me. And that's the ultimate reason I haven't had a Facebook account for several years, apart from a short season last year during quarantine. I could list probably a dozen other good reasons, but that's the primary one. That is what repentance had to look like for me. If what you look at on social media causes you to sin, whether in this area or in some other area, stirs up your anger, perhaps, cut it out and throw it away. I had to change my habits, change my behavior, so that lusting was not an easy option. I also had to realize the true nature of my sin, that I was objectifying women, using them to satisfy my own selfish desires. Repentance meant that I had to stop doing that. And by God's grace, I have. As we conclude, let's briefly consider the violence of repentance and the seriousness of warnings. The Apostle Paul draws from Jesus' violent imagery in Romans 8.13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if... By the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. All the strategies, sacrifices, and accountability are simply ways of benefiting from the Spirit's work. As always in the Christian life, my effort is necessary, but not decisive. If we are to be successful in our war on sin, the Spirit is the one who will achieve the victory by actually transforming our hearts and our desires. But we also must actually fight. Repentance is incomplete until the attitudes of the heart are changed, the sinful desires of the heart are ceased, and the behavior of the hands is stopped. Jesus is loving us by warning us about the danger of hell. Jesus reigns over us to such a degree that he has the right to command our emotions, to rebuke our desires, and to change our hearts for the better. Jesus is also the judge who will hold us accountable for every idle word that we speak. Your practical righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, or you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The right, this righteousness includes gaining control of our anger and our tongues and eliminating lust from our hearts. Jesus has told us the pathway. Jesus has told us what repentance looks like when we fail. Let reconciliation with each other be your top priority so that you don't harbor anger in your heart. Take your sinful desires so seriously that you take drastic measures to cut out of your life things that stir your desires in harmful directions. Jesus carried the guilt of our sins, sins like anger, insults, and lust, on his shoulders onto the cross, and he died to pay the eternal penalty our sins deserve. But he carried that guilt so that we would not bear it ourselves 
and also so that we would, as Peter says, live to righteousness. I think that means that by the Spirit's power, we continue to put to death actual sinning in our lives. And by the power of Jesus' resurrection, we pursue obedience to all that Jesus has commanded. I'd like to close our time together in prayer and leave you with these final words to our Father. Father, thank you for the power of your word. We could never have victory over sin, whether in our hearts or minds, attitudes, or in our behavior, if you weren't at work in us. And so we look to you. Father, we cannot win on our own. We cannot have success on our own. You call us and command us to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. But you promise that it will be you, O Lord, who is working in us both to will and to work for your good pleasure. So enable us to please you. Enable us to pursue reconciliation. I pray for people in this body who have disagreements, who've had arguments, who take measures to avoid each other when they come into the building. Would you stir their hearts to move toward each other in a true, genuine reconciliation? Would you bring healing to the wounds that we've caused each other in conversation or by posts that we've had online or things we've said about each other to other people? Would you bring healing in those places? Pour out your grace, Father, we pray. For Jesus' sake.